thing as individual love or individual grace. I could be full, completely overflowing with grace. It could be, it could be squirting out of my ears. But if there is no one else to share it with, then it isn't grace. I could have, I could have love shooting out of my eyeballs. But if there is no one else to share it with, it is not love. So we knew we had to come to some point in time to where we were going to have to talk about sharing the character of God. Not just being it, but sharing it. Because without sharing it, then the character of God really doesn't exist. We may think that it exists. We may think that we can walk around and, 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 and grow more like Christ and be more like Christ. But there comes a point in time to where Jesus had to meet the people. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said that those two were, were equal. They were, they, 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 he said the second is as great as. It's not the second. It's not love God and, and, and then way down the line, second place, love your neighbor as yourself. God being love actually created in order for love to exist. He decided he was going to be love, and he decided he was going to create you and me to prove or to actually live out the love that he knew he became or wanted to become. So sharing the character of God, sharing the grace, it has to happen. It has to happen. So when we come to sharing, we have to start talking about then how we treat others, how we treat each other. What does the character of God in you mean for when it comes to treating each other. And I think when it comes to treating each other, there's a, there's a simple biblical framework. And it begins with the simplest or the most based, which should be the easiest to carry out. Should be the easiest. If we go to the Ten Commandments and we look, the simplest, or it should be, what's the simplest thing we should be able to do with people? Not what? Not kill them. It should be the simplest, and that's why I put in parentheses, or it should be, okay? It should be. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet your neighbor's what? Anything, okay? So you see, the simplest begins to work out to what I would call the hardest because of, because of who we are. See, we're not grace-filled characters by nature, are we? Grace is not our nature. It is not our default mode. It is not our default position. Selfishness is. Sin took grace away as our default position. By the way, good news for you today. Jesus is coming to give you that back. In the kingdom, it will now be your default position again. Grace will be. But until now, we need these. We need guidelines. Okay, we need to be told. So it's supposed to be working then from the simplest, if you will, to the hardest. Because if you think about it, it goes from physically not taking anything away, physically not having another man's wife or another woman's husband and stealing. And then it comes to lying. And then it actually comes to coveting. It goes from physical action, actually wringing the life out of somebody all the way down to your thoughts and your heart deeds and your heart intention. Thou shall not covet. And covet simply means you won't want. 
Don't want anything of your neighbors because that is the bitter root that begins. If you think about it, that is giving in to your selfishness. Why shouldn't we want anything of our neighbors? Because it doesn't belong to us. But being selfish by nature, we want it. We want it. So when it comes to to sharing the character of God, we wanted to begin with the most commonplace. In other words, when you're speaking to a you don't expect anybody in the church Okay, to actually walk around every day wanting to wring the life out of somebody, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, there might be flashes. There might be flashes of, you know, what it, uh, how nice it would be if this person was no longer here, okay? No longer breathing, okay, okay. No longer talking. We, we may have flashes, but for the most part, it's a no-brainer, right? We don't murder, do we? We don't murder. And so in some ways, the hardest or the greatest becomes the easiest. And then the simplest or the basis becomes the most difficult. And that's why we wanted to start with what should be the easiest. Because it is the most commonplace in which we begin to speak to each other. We begin to treat each other. And it's the simplest thing is what we say. What we say. So when we start talking about the character of God, we have to have a conversation about this one type of conversation that should not be uh, the hardest, but it is, because it exists with us all. And I'll introduce it with just a, 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 a little humorous tale. Garrison Keeler Speaking of his upbringing in the stories he tells in his semi-fictional Tales from Lake Wobegon, tells of his, of his aunt, one particular aunt in his family who would come by every Saturday early in the afternoon. She had just come from the Bon Marche Beauty Salon, and of course she had all the news. Who was seeing who? Who was not speaking to whom? who was drinking again, and so on and so forth. And Keeler adds, we were a sanctified brother and family, and we led Christ-centered, modest lives. And we were prepared to offer forgiveness to everybody, but we needed to know exactly what we were forgiving them for. So the first thing we have to attack in our own characters before we begin to share the character of God is how we say what we say, the intention behind it. There has to be a discussion about what? Gossip. There has to be a discussion about gossip. It got quiet all of a sudden. Why did it? Because we're all guilty, aren't we? Every one of us are. So would you like to get a biblical background on gossip, and maybe it will help us a little bit? Would you like to get into that today? All right. From the Talmud. From the Talmud, there is a saying that says, What does a good guest say? How much trouble has my host gone for me? How much meat he has set before me? Look how much wine he has brought me. How many cakes he has served me. All this trouble he has gone to for my sake. That's what a what? 
That's what a good guest says. And then the Talmud says, what does a bad guest say? What kind of effort did this host make for me? I've eaten only one slice of bread. I've eaten only one piece of meat. I've drunk only one cup of wine. Whatever trouble the host went to was only for the sake of his wife and for his children. This is the exact same party. Exact same party 2,000 years ago. It goes straight to the heart of what you would consider biblically ethical speech. The fact that most of us, given a willing ear, become bad guests and disloyal friends. All we need is a listening ear, a willing ear, a willing participant. It's infinitely more interesting to look for others' flaws than it is to praise their good qualities. Why is that? Why is that? We'll talk about it in a little bit, but it has something to do with missing the grace of God. We're not assured, we're not confident in who we are. So it's a whole lot easier to talk about someone else's bad qualities because it makes me feel better. And when we miss the fact that we are totally, absolutely loved by God in Christ, it makes it so much easier, so much easier to engage in what this kind of conversation is. Gossip or the impulse to be a bad guest directly violates a powerful biblical injunction. Pastor Wall already said Leviticus 19.18 is probably the Bible's most famous law. If you were to ask people who know nothing about the Bible, they know this law. And what is it? The whole verse is, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It is the Bible's most famous law. People who don't know anything about it know that law. How should you love your neighbor? As yourself. How should you treat your neighbor? As yourself. How should you talk about your neighbor? But what's interesting is that this verse, this is found two verses after, two verses after this one, which probably is the Bible's most direct injunction against gossip. You go back to verse 16, and it says, in the New Revised Standard Version and and, and the modern versions, it says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I like it in the King James Version actually better. It says, thou shalt not go up and down as a what? As a tail bearer. See, there's a difference between a tail bearer and a slanderer. See, slander has a definite definition today, doesn't it? It has a legal definition. And slander is anything untrue that, that uh, uh, defames somebody's character. Right? Is it true? Libel in print, slander speaking. Is, 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 isn't that right? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But actually, the word is tailbearer. In other words, that, that, that it may not be true... It, it may not actually, it may not be true, but it might be a tailbearer, if you will. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people. It is the Bible's most direct injunction against gossip. And it comes two verses before the Bible's most famous law. You shall love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Tailbearer. An informer. 
Okay? The Greek word rachil, if you will. It's terse. There is an elaboration to it. The word's used six times in the Hebrew. Two of those times are in these verses right here. Proverbs 11, 13, and 20, 19. And, and all the modern versions translate it as what? A gossip. A gossip goes about telling secrets, but one who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a confidence. There you go. There's the character of God right there. The thing about the Proverbs is that they're, they're, they're the most direct. There's, there's no sugarcoating. There's no nothing. You want to be like the character of God? You don't want to be like the character of God. Yes, yet no. Yes, no. No, yes. A gossip goes about doing what? Telling secrets. But a God-like character, someone who is trustworthy, keeps what? Keeps confidence, keeps secrets. And in 2019, a gossip reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a babbler. A different word, but, but Solomon puts it together with talebearer, if you will. Like I said, slander has a specific definition. Telling actual lies, defaming somebody's reputation, putting out allegations that are untrue. And that's not, that's not the idea that you want to come to cross in, in Leviticus 19.16. It's not slander. Definitely don't slander. But actually it's don't go telling what? Tales. Anything. Tale bearing is different. They could be secrets. They're probably true. It's even more fundamental. The Bible just might be saying why, just might be asking all of us, why are you talking about anybody else at all? When you're with someone, why are you talking about somebody else? And I don't mean you. Anytime I say you, shout it out. Remind me, we, okay? Why are we talking about somebody else? It might be asking us. So the question is, if you're always, if, uh, if you're always, if you're talking about somebody else, the question, we, thank you, sir. The question is, is it gossip? We want to define it, right? If we're talking about someone else, is it gossip? I think that, that, that 2,000 years of biblical and Christian and Jewish scholarship will let us know. The, in, uh, the, uh, the Jewish scholarship has actually uh, defined or classified gossip in, in three categories. So we'll start with the most obvious. I want to start with the... Uh, again, like with thou shall not kill, I want to start with the simplest or the hardest, however you want to look at it. But it should be the most, e- uh, the, the, the most obvious, and that is slander itself. It's in Hebrew, it's motzi shem ra. Now, a hint, whenever you see ra in Hebrew, it simply means evil. The word ra simply means evil. There may be a couple of other derivations and definitions of it, but when you see the word ra, so motzi shem ra, that is the very first classification of gossip, and it is considered slander. <clears throat> it's the most grievous ethical violation of speech. And the Bible clearly gives us examples of what slander is and what is capable, the damage that's capable by slander. In Esther 3.8, Haman comes to the king Ahasuerus and says, There's a certain people scattered and separated among these peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different than those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. That is not appropriate for the king to uh, tolerate them. Now, was that true? No. The only law supposedly broken was that Mordecai would bow to Haman. 
That was the law. Haman was mad. And now he slanders an entire people on behalf of this, trying to tell the king that they are lawless. What are the results? Letters were sent to couriers to all the king's provinces, giving orders to what? To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. This would have been a captivity holocaust. And it started with one bit of slander. These people don't keep the king's laws. And it wasn't what? It wasn't true. It wasn't true. Stephen, full of grace and power, did wonders and great signs among the people. They secretly instigated some men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Did, did Stephen ever speak blasphemous words against Moses and God? Nope. They set up what? False witnesses. This man never stopped saying things against this holy place and the law. Was that true? No. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. Did Jesus ever say that he would destroy the temple? No. He said the temple would be what? It will be destroyed. He never said he would destroy it. Right? So what kind of gossip is this? It's slander. Did it work? They dragged him out of the city, began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, it got Stephen stoned, the slander got Stephen stoned, but Saul then takes that slander and begins to go to every province around, and what does he begin to do with that slander? He begins to imprison and kill thousands, thousands of these, of these, of these Jews in this new sect that would eventually become the way that would eventually become Christianity. So the Bible is very clear as to what slander can do. And of course, the most obvious bit of slander that we know of, many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need any witness? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they answered, he deserves what? It probably was slander that got Jesus killed that night. So Motsi Shem Ra is the no-brainer of gossip. Does the Bible say that we can ever take part in this? Do we put a maybe beside slander? Those of you who are going to go out and share, those of us who are going to go out and share the character of God, are we allowed to slander? No, never, never, never. We understand the damage that it can cause. Slander is the easiest spot to spot. It is the no-brainer of gossip, right? No-brainer of gossip. Second classification is Lashan Hara. Again, Ra, what is it? Evil. Evil. Negative what? Negative truths. Okay, so we're not allowed to go tell lies about someone else that defames them, okay? But what if it's true? What if it's true? What if what I'm about to tell you is true, even though it's negative, and even though it will defame, am I allowed to do that? Are we allowed to do that? Most people think there isn't anything morally wrong about spreading negative information about someone as long as the information is true. 
Jewish scholars call this Lashan Ha-Ra. Okay? Let me tell you about Jewish law. <clears throat> it absolutely forbids the spreading of negative truths unless one thing. Unless the person to whom you are speaking absolutely needs the information. Absolutely needs the information. Ethicists have struggled with this for years. I struggle with it. I'm sure you struggle with it. We all struggle with it. Swiss theologian and poet Jonathan K. Levatter, he offers an apt guideline. Never tell evil of a man if you don't know it for a certainty. And if you do know it for a certainty, ask yourself one question. Why should I tell it? Why should I tell it? So, does the Bible address this at all? Does the Bible address this kind of gossip, if you will, at all? Actually, it does. And where does it address it? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. But you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. What was Dr. Labatter trying to tell us? If you do know it's true and it's true for a fact, but it is defaming, it is negative, and the question you should ask is why should I tell it? The one thing that you have to discern for yourself is whether or not it violates the golden rule. See, Jesus is commenting on this. It's probably why it, it exists as the Bible's most famous law is that Jesus takes it and he comments on it. Everything you do to others, do to them as you would have them do to you. For this is the what? For this is the law and the prophets. By the way, it's a great story. The golden rule. It's not original with Jesus. Jesus made it revolutionary in how he applied it. But Rabbi Hillel, about 50 years earlier, had a smart aleck student come up to him and say, recite the entire law and prophets while standing on one foot. And Hillel, being an old man, it, the guy was, it was one of his students, but, but he was, you know, he, he was just one of those students, kind of like I was. Smart aleck, okay? And actually, Rabbi Hillel lifted up one foot and says, that which is hateful to you, don't do to others. Put his foot back down and walked away. In everything you do, do unto others as you would have done to yourself. This is why it's the Bible's most famous law. So you ask yourself, what, what does it, it has much to do with your intention? If I know this about somebody and I want to tell somebody, what is my intention? Well, number one, it can't be for a vengeance or for a grudge. It can't be so I can feel better. And ultimately, that's what gossip comes down to. Why am I doing this? It makes me feel better. I have to admit that. It makes me feel better about myself when I know something negative about someone else. Especially if I'm jealous of that other person. Especially if that other person has something I want. Especially if I'm coveting anything of that neighbor. So the ultimate question I, that, that it has to come down to. To me, it's a no-brainer. It does make me feel better. I'm confessing that. I'm confessing it right now. By the way, it's a whole lot easier uh, time of it if you're going to begin to attack uh, your habit of gossip. Is it if you admit that right now? It makes us feel better.
in most cases, passing on something that is negative about someone else is a direct violation of the golden rule. How many of us can think of one episode in our life that if it got out to more than a few people in this room would cause us great, great embarrassment? Is it true? Is that one thing true about you? It's true about me. It's true. But I don't want you to know it. And I think there are a lot of things in our lives that actually no one else has the right to know. Until I can love them like myself. Until you can love me like yourself. Then maybe we have a right to know. So Pastor Greg are saying never. Never, never. They give us further guidelines actually. Jewish law does. They give us further, further guidelines. Oh, it's not up there. Sorry. Number one, it has to be true. Okay? If you're not sure it's true, what is it now? It's a rumor. Guideline number one, strict, hard line right now. You never, ever pass on a rumor. We never, ever pass on a rumor. So first, you have to absolutely know positively it's a true. Okay? Want a guideline of what a rumor is? <laughs> the Talmud says this. If something is as clear to you as the fact that your, that your sister is forbidden to you as a mate. That's pretty clear, right? Let's hope that's clear. Kind of like going back to the thou shalt not murder thing, right? Let's hope that's clear in this room at least, right? Before passing on words that could destroy another's reputation, remember you, you know, we are holding a loaded gun. And once we fire it, we never get it back, do we? See, that's the thing about words. That's the thing about words. An old Talmudic tale say that words, words are not like swords, they're like arrows. For I can change my mind from the time that I draw my sword to the time that I'm about to use it on you, and I can put my sword back. But once an arrow's gone, you never get it back. They knew that 3,000 years ago. They knew the damage that words could cause. Number two, only ethics would dictate that you pass it along to somebody who can directly do something. They can help. Okay? They can help. Again, if you go back to verse 16, it says that you shall not go out about as a slander among your people. You're not to act against the life of of your neighbor, I am the Lord. Act against, okay? Literally, it's to stand against. You're not to stand against your neighbor. Some commentaries take this to mean stand by while the blood of your neighbor is being shed. If we're going to pass on something negative about someone else, it has to be able to help. It has to be able to keep somebody from getting hurt, okay? And it has to be able to help the person who may do the hurting. So you don't want to stand by while someone is going to get hurt just because you're afraid you're going to violate the golden rule. If you know somebody's going to hurt somebody, somebody needs to know. Right? But tell somebody that, it's going to, that, that can help. See, my problem is I can understand that. I know that. Okay? I know that. I'll call the police. I'll tell the police they can help. But why did I tell the five other people before I called the police? By the way, the hardest, the absolute hardest. Why did I tell the five other people in my mind 
Oh, so they could pray. What, the prayer circle, praying for people, okay, is, is what makes church the hardest, the hardest place to begin to address gossip. And I'm the only one that knows whether or not I really wanted them to be prayed for or really I wanted them to know this about this other person so that I could look better in his eyes. So, and again it says you can't do it when we go back to 18. It says you can't do it if it's a judgment. You can't do it if, you're, if it's a grudge or you're holding a, a, a grudge, or that it's vengeance. That isn't the reason to pass on negative truth. So what I'm trying to get across, what I'm trying to get across, is that who does this fall on to determine? It falls on ourselves. It falls on us. We're the ones that have to determine. We're the, ones that, we're the only ones that know our motive for saying something, for doing something. We're the only ones. So we ask ourselves that. So I told you there were three categories of gossip, defamatory and untrue, defamatory and true. We got that, right? How about non-defamatory and true? Are we allowed to say good things about people? How many? Let's take a poll before we get into it. I, I know you think it's a trick question, right? Are we allowed to say good things about people? How many say yes? Only about four raised their hand now. I heard, I heard vocal commitments, but about four or five, okay? Because the other people know what's coming, right? You're thinking, ah, this is too easy a question. This is too easy a question. What about positive things? Well, one reason why you don't say positive things about other people is that, number one, okay, here's one reason. It may not be appropriate because of who you're talking to. The person you're talking to might not find it so positive. Here's an example. You might be describing how wonderful a host she was at her party. Describe about how wonderful her newly remodeled kitchen looks. You might be describing uh, how wonderful uh, hospitality was received in the home, but you might be telling somebody who was trying to raise money a month ago, and that person told her she didn't have any. Then it doesn't become so innocuous, does it? And it actually begins to do the opposite. You know, one thing, one thing that the, this study through Ecclesiastes taught me is that mankind messed even that up. We made good sinful. We could even make good things sinful. Only mankind can sin by being good. Because of motive. We messed that up too. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is human nature. Positive gossip rarely remains so if you keep talking. If we keep talking, right? We could be praising people for good traits, but how long am I going to devote time to good things? If you're going to keep listening to me, how long is my nature going to allow me to continue to praise this person in your presence? Will the conversation turn? All right, don't talk about yourself. Talk about me. Yes, it will, won't it? The thing about this, though, it's the one that claims to have the character of God is the one that controls where it goes. 
We're the ones that do. Praising somebody might seem harmless. It may even seem helpful. But in the presence of others who don't feel the same about that someone you're praising, it can cause damage. I want you to ponder this proverb. Okay? Whoever blesses a neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as what? Now, you may think just because that person is grumpy and he's not a morning person, that's why it will be counted as a curse. But actually, the rabbis look at that and they say, you know what? No. Whoever blesses a neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Is that sometimes, sometimes the praise may bring scrutiny upon a person that is not welcome. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, in his book, The Words That Hurt and The Words That Heal, tells this story. Have you ever heard of Oliver Sipple? Most of us haven't. Most of us have neither, never heard of him or we've forgotten who he was. Oliver Sipple was an ex-Marine who saved the life of President Gerald Ford in 1975. While Ford was visiting San Francisco, Sipple saw Sarah Jane Moore, who was standing next to him, aim a gun directly at the president. Sipple grabbed Moore's arm and deflected her aim so that the bullet missed the president. Overnight, he became a national hero. When reporters came to interview Sipple, he had only one request. Don't publish anything about me. Unfortunately, his plea piqued the journalist's curiosity, and within days, the L.A. Times, quickly followed by dozens of other newspapers, trumpeted the news that Sipple was active in gay causes in the San Francisco area. Now, you have to remember, this is 1975. One reporter confronted Sipple's mother in Detroit and asked her whether she knew about her son's apparent homosexuality. Mrs. Sipple was visibly stunned since she had known nothing about it. Of course, that was the reason Sipple had begged reporters not to write about his life, and shortly thereafter, his mother stopped speaking to him. When she died four years later, his father informed him that he would not be welcome at her funeral. Devastated by the rupture in his relationship with his family, Sipple began to drink heavily and became increasingly withdrawn from those around him. A few years later, he was found in his apartment dead at age 47. The L.A. Times reporter who publicized Sipple's homosexuality made this post-mortem comment, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't. But Rabbi Tulushkin goes on to ask, why did he have to in the first place? Why did he and other reporters have to do it? Sipple had saved the life of the president. The entire country was deeply in his debt. Yet the insatiable curiosity of the press and the readers to learn the true story about this new American hero caused them to search for a fresh angle. After all, how many times could they describe how he had caused Moore's gun to misfire? How many times can you describe that? And like I said, the conversations that we have, how many times can we talk about how good her kitchen looked? It demonstrates the inadvertent damage that can be done even when people start talking positively about others. Again, Ecclesiastes tells us we did what? Our sin has ruined everything. Unless we remain acutely conscious of the direction in which a conversation is heading, such talk is likely to remain positive. Psychologists, when we talk about... Uh, when we talk about uh, um, Gossip, 
Psychologist tells it is that it does more than hurt the victim. It's self-destructive. Because what we do is that we begin to formulate in our words the emotions that we attach to that person. So when I speak negatively about someone else to someone else, I'm actually uh, forming those emotions and I will become more and more detached from that person. The more we talk about other people, the more we do that, the more detached we become from other people. It becomes hard to face them because we know in the back of our mind, I just talked about someone else about you. It becomes hard to face them and we alienate ourselves. Psychiatrist Antonio Wood says that, that probably the biggest cause of depression is alienation. And there's not many disease or disorders more widespread in America today than depression. If in the presence of others, if in the presence of someone else, that we took the time that we dedicate to talk about other people who are not there, into strengthening the relationship that's right in front of us, how much better friends would we have? How much better friends could we be? How easy is it to sit with someone and not talk about someone else? Is it the simplest? Is it as easy as not murdering them? No. It's the hardest, isn't it? It's the hardest. It'll help us with our anger, with our tempers. People who learn to speak fairly avoid going through regretting cruel words. They also, they keep more friends. And right now, I feel like Pastor Walt did three weeks ago. Remember when Pastor Walt began to go through the characters, the characteristics of God and began to name them of how we treat other people? And he stopped and said, You know, right now I'm kind of feeling in the need of grace because we know how far short we've all fallen. And I have to share with you in in, in a moment of of, of confession that, that pastors and leaders, we probably do the worst form of gossip because we do it in the interest and the guise of leadership of the church. There are things we have to discuss as leaders. There are things we need to do to protect people and protect our members But I, for one, do it much more and beyond that. And for that, I am profoundly, profoundly sorry. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up. See, if we find ourselves being controlled by anger, hate, and fear, all the sources of gossip, by the way, if we gossip, we gossip incessantly, it's because there is some sort of anger, some sort of fear, some sort of hatred lying back within us. Think about what gossip does in order to assuage or in order to to kind of salve anger, fear, and hurt. Are we angry at somebody? The best way to hurt them back is to tell someone else because I'm not going to get tagged for it. See, that's the one thing. It's it's one thing. It'd be one thing for me to hate somebody else. Okay, it'd be one thing for me to hate somebody else. The thing that probably would be the best thing to do would be to admit that, would be to go to the person and say, look, I hate you. Can we work this out? See, but I don't do that because I don't want to get tagged for that. I don't want that person to know I hate him because then you'll think I'm a bad person. And by the way, that's my problem. We fear working it out with them. Why? Because they may not accept it. 
we go to somebody and we confess and we ask for forgiveness, are they obligated to forgive? No. They may not do it. And we don't want that. And then what they'll do is they'll go tell someone else what I did. Fear, anger, hatred. We can hate without being labeled as hateful. That's the, that's the, the beautiful bomb that gossip brings us all. I'm going to say something that's going to be very, very hard. If it's something so difficult that we can't put it away, if it's something so difficult that we cannot do, if we cannot give or share the grace of God, then it's because we have missed the grace ourselves. So I can't let you leave. I cannot let you leave without you knowing, all of us knowing, that us, right now, as we sit, hateful, afraid, hurt, gossip-mongering people that we are, Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. While we were His enemies, He died for us. He didn't die for us because we would become good. He died for us because He loves us right now. And that love is the only chance we've got, everybody. It's the only shot we've got. The simplest formula is that if we can't share the grace of God, it's because we've missed it ourselves. And by the way, seeing it, proclaiming it, preaching it is still only one phase. It's just one phase. It's enough for Pastor Walt and I to get up here and to give you Christ-centered gospel sermons for you to hear the good news. It's another thing for the church to begin to be it. It's another thing for the church to begin to share it. When we're convicted by preaching, when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus really does love us and assured, then we can be it to others. And when we can be it to others, then we together as others, then we can go out and we can share it. But we've got to be able to share it in here. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that none of us miss the grace of God. Say it in the first person. See to it that you don't miss the grace of God. That's who we are. So before we go share it, and we know how far short we come, we can cry out with the father of the child that was possessed by the demoniac that the disciples could not cast out. And Jesus said, do you believe I can do this? And, and the, actually, he didn't. the father just said, if you're able, can you cast him out? And Jesus said, if I'm able. If you believe, I'm able. And the father said, I believe. Help my what? Help my unbelief. That should be our cry, that we don't miss the grace of God. That we understand that fundamentally at the core, we are unbelievers. Even as we sit here, even as I speak to you, at my core, I'm an, I'm an unbeliever. But guess what? He loves me anyway. He says, Greg, I love your unbelieving self. And I say, Father, I believe. He goes, I know you do. Just help my unbelief. We take that cry out. And then we'll make sure that no one else misses the grace of God. Let's pray.
طالب